Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome into the Otson Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prame, Eric Scopel on the show as always. And we're going to dive into this right now, looking back at the college football season for the Oregon Ducks in the year 2020. Is it a success or was this year in which it was could be viewed as a disappointing season? We're going to break both sides of that down and then ultimately give our verdicts on what we view the 2020 college football season for Oregon. But first, I want to remind you, subscribe today for $1 for your first month. One freaking dollar for your first month, $9.95 thereafter. That inside scoop on the Oregon Ducks, expert analysis and opinion. You get to read all the content across the entire 24-7 Sports Network. That means you don't just subscribe to us uh, and you get our VIP coverage, but you can go to the USC site and see what they are reporting on a recruit that Oregon and USC is going after. You can go and get the VIP scoop from Brandon Huffman on the number one player in the country and what he's viewing uh, that recruitment as. You can go to Ohio State in the fall, let's say, and check out what they are saying ahead of Oregon traveling to Buckeye land. You get the full coverage on 24-7 Sports Network, not just one site. And you also get to join a community that is growing every single day. It's one of the largest in, in the internet for Oregon Duck fans. Uh, we are very proud of the community that we've developed, and it's a great group of, of people that talk all things Ducks. So make sure to do that right away. Okay, Eric, um, 2020 season, Oregon wins the Pac-12 championship game. So they are now two-time Pac-12 champions. Uh, it's been a while since they could say that. They had to replace Justin Herbert. They had to replace an offensive line. Troy Dye was gone at linebacker, along with notable uh, seniors from that defense. They also had to deal with some opt-outs, and understandably so of why those guys opted out. Penny Sewell, the best offensive lineman in the country, decides not to play. Javon Holland, maybe one of the top safeties in the country, decides not to play. Brady Breeze, Thomas Graham, two more secondary star players for Oregon opting out. And so there was a lot of things to overcome for this Oregon football team. And they win the Pac-12, but they also finished the year four and three. Like that feels weird to 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 look at. And so let's look at let's look at things here from the offensive side of the football first. Things that you like things that you don't like. Um, I look at this and think, Hey, the, the Oregon offense was fourth in the conference in scoring uh, 31.3 points per game. You look at that and that's just a small dip. That's about four points fewer than what they did in 2019 with a v, a very senior laden unit. You know, so many new players on that offense. I, I'm okay with that. You know, rushing offense, uh, they were middle of the pack. That's probably an area where I look at this and think that needs to be significantly better. Um, passing offense, top four again, uh, new quarterback, new offensive line, a lot of new faces in the in the, the area that the quarterback is throwing to. 
How, how do we judge? What, 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 do we, what are the positives that we look at for offense right now? That's a good question, Matt. Um, I think you look at Oregon made a very, very good hire at wide receivers coach. Let's start there. I think that's pretty obvious. I think Brian McClendon. I mean, the receivers on this team were really great all season. And, you know, I know the stats diminished at the back end. We've talked about this before. There's no position an offense that's going to be impacted more adversely by bad quarterback play than wide receiver. And it's hard for them to put up stats when the quarterback can't get them the football and that the, when the offense kind of shifts to short routes because the quarterbacks can't throw it down the, foot, down the field. I thought we saw it took a little bit of time, but Devin Williams really emerged in the middle of the season. And, of course, we didn't see much on the back end, but I think you look at the games where he didn't have stats, he didn't play against Cal. He did play against USC and Iowa State, but quarterback play in both those games was extremely shaky. Um, I think you saw the upside there from Devin Williams of like, this guy could be an all-conference guy in 2021. Um, I think that's really pivotal. I think um, offensive coordinator, I really liked what I saw from Joe Moorhead 85% of the snaps. I think especially to start games, um, really innovative, did some fun things, did some stuff we hadn't seen for a while at Oregon. I do, I do think like here's something we haven't talked about much, the dual threat nature of the quarterback. Um, I, I found that to be something that I am happy, happy to see once again at Oregon, as long as you have the personnel to do it, you know, and I know they didn't have, I mean, Justin Herbert can run, but based upon his injury against Cal, you had to be careful with him. And I think maybe the lack of depth behind him. And of course this year's team, it's not like we didn't know exactly what they had at quarterback, but clearly they were confident enough in Anthony Brown that if Tyler Shuck were to get a hit and taken out of a game, early in the season, they were comfortable running. I mean, I think people forget Tyler Shuck ran for 80 yards the first two games of the season. Um, and, and, and a lot of those were on design. Really good point. Some of them were scrambles. Um, I, I love that kind of that element, which we just hadn't seen at Oregon in a long time. So um, I think that, I think you feel really good about both those hires, right? And that's a good place to start. Um, Mario Cristobal went out and hired two very capable assistant coaches. Brian McClendon has done a great job, not just, in building up this receiving group, but also in recruiting. Um, Joe Moorhead has done a great job in both areas as well. So I think you feel really good about those hires. Um, it's the tight end position, similar kind of thing. I think you feel good about, I mean, Hunter Kantmeyer's development. How about that? I mean, I think yeah. that's, that's one of the feel good stories of this season of this is somebody that we bemoaned as boy, this guy, can he ever be a difference maker as a pass catcher? And he goes out there and has a season where I can't really think of a significant drop he had all season. Um, he made some tough catches. He's, he's caught three touchdown passes, which is second on the team. DJ Johnson's emergence, another converted defensive player who came out of the gate and was like, oh, my gosh, could this guy be an all-conference player? Of course, his production dipped as soon as um, Kantmar came back and there was a bit of a rotation there. I mean, the fact that they basically had two healthy tight ends all season and that position group wasn't maybe even like the third or fourth worst position group on the entire offense. Um, that says something. So like I, I, I look at the passing game and think those areas to me, I feel really good about. And I, I feel good about the fact that they've kind of started to incorporate the quarterback in the running game. I think that's a really important part of college football. You know, you don't see it as much in the pros unless you have a player like Lamar Jackson, who's, you know, run for a thousand yards, two consecutive seasons, but for the most part, you try to protect those quarterbacks in college. I, I think it's something you, you, you kind of need to a certain extent to at least have the threat of it. And to start the season with those two games, I thought that was really encouraging. And I'll be curious to see, and this is somewhat going to depend upon who's at quarterback to start 2021. And that's for a different show. 
But I will be curious to see if that's something that continues. And I hope it does. I hope it does. Because I think that's a weapon that Oregon has not utilized since Marcus Mariota. And to a lesser extent, Vernon Adams was at Oregon. I look at the conference in, in Oregon and their history, right? They are always near the top in rushing yards. They were second in 2019. Uh, they were fourth in 2018, second in 2017, second in 2016, first in 2015, first in 2014, first in 2013, first in 2012, first in 2011, first in 2010, first in 2019. And you go back even further, they're, they're yep. first. Yep. Um, yep. They took a significant drop in 2020, seventh in the conference. Their average number per, per rushing yard, fifth in the conference at, at 4.92 yards per carry. Total number of touchdowns, fifth in the conference. They were tied with UCLA for thir- with 13. Attempts for, per game, they were ninth in the conference. This area needs to improve for Oregon in 2021 and moving forward. This is a program, regardless of who the head coach is, they have consistently been one of the nation's best teams at running the football. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, Eric, uh, you look at this offense under Mario Cristobal and he prides himself in this program being physical at the line of scrimmage, being dominant, being able to flex their will on an opponent. And when you say those things, that's basically meaning we want to be a dominant team in the run game. We want to be good through the air too, but when it comes push to shove, we want to be able to run the football and you can't stop us. And I don't think you could say that at all about this 2020 Oregon football team on the ground. Well, let's just start here. Like, how I and you just ran through the stats in terms of the conference. When was the last time Oregon didn't have a single running back or, or rusher on the entire team finishing the top 10 in the conference? And Travis Dye was 11th in the conference with um, 443 yards. That's an average of 63.3. You have to use the average because some of these teams played four games, some of these teams played like six or seven, but like that is not acceptable. And I understand that there's more to this because CJ Verdell started the season averaging like 110 yards per game. The first two weeks, he was the primary running back. He goes down. You're forced to adjust on the fly. Die didn't, you know, have as many, many opportunities early in those games. And he also can, if you go total, total yards, he's a great pass catcher. But the point here is like Oregon's run game. They didn't have that guy. Um, they didn't have that, that running back that could just take over a game and dominate. I, um, I, I Travis Dye didn't even average 10 carries a game, which speaks to the team's inability to really establish that run game. Um, I mean, Tyler Shuck led the team in rushing attempts this year. Yeah, I know that includes sacks, but like that's not a trend you want at all. So, you know, as much as I I do like the quarterback being involved in the run game, I think that's really important because you do look at the yards per carry. Travis Dye. Um, one of the top He's in the fifth conference in the conference in yards per carry with almost seven a carry, which is great. No one can diminish that. He, he, like we talk about the run game. I, I don't put this on Travis die. No, he needs to, he, he has a fumble issue. He has to figure that out. He's fumbled it too many times over the course of his career. I think he's got at least two fumbles each year. He's played at Oregon. Um, and, and some have come in really bad spots, but like, I don't put it on Travis die as much as I put it on like Oregon needs better running backs. Oregon needs, 
to establish the run game um, in different ways. And I, I think you enter 2021 and as much as we want to talk about the issues at quarterback, like you've got a real, like it's, it's not any, it's not any more clear what you want to do at running back in my mind either though. Like, I mean, I think clearly quarterback's the bigger issue because that position by the end was kind of a disaster um, and was much more to me impactful for why they couldn't win games. But I don't go into 2021 feeling like, Hey, we know who Oregon's starting running back is. We know who their star running back is. We feel really good about this guy. And as you said earlier, this is a program that has built itself on it. And you can run through the names over the course of the last couple of decades that have just been NFL running backs, or at least all conference running backs. Oregon doesn't have one on this team. And you're right from a team that wants to in a program that wants to have an identity on the ground, the lack of that presence on the roster and going into an off season where you just don't know who that's going to be necessarily is certainly problematic. And so I'm with you from like, if you want to talk about places you're disappointed or, or concerned or when maybe the season w- was a failure um, or a shortcoming, like running back has to be at least acknowledged. And, and that run game in general has to be noted because this conf- this, you know, with as good of an offensive line and a coach that, that coaches that position at such a high level. Um, and we need, we should talk about the offensive line too, because I don't think they were without fault for any of this. Um, but the run game stats have to be better and Oregon needs to find better running back play like point blank period. And I know it's hard. It, you know, some of that's kind of hard to put entirely on the personnel just because CJ Verdell is supposed to be this all conference 24 seven sports before the season had him named the offensive MVP of the conference. We both were kind of like not totally bought into that. We didn't make those. Nope. But we didn't make, we, we didn't put together those awards. We didn't buy into it. We both said, like, he should be an all-conference running back. Like, he should be on the one of the two teams. He was last year. So part of that is health with, tra- uh, with CJ. But, like, they go into this offseason, and I, I think it's legitimate. Like, this position needs to be figured out, and maybe it needs to be retooled, and maybe for the first time in a while. I mean, the reality is this has been a group that has relied upon three players for the last three years. Um, CJ Burdell and Travis Dye, obviously, primarily, and then Cyrus Bibilicchio on rundowns, or on short yardage downs, I should say. Um, I, w- I think this is the time they talked going into the offseason. Remember this, these quotes about how they had five guys who could start a, at teams in the Pac-12? We need one. You need one. <laughs> I, and, if you've got, and if you've got two more other than the three we see so much, let's see Sean Dollars more. Let's see Trey Benson. I know Benson, I think, I believe had injuries. But like, I go into 21 thinking, hey, let's test these guys out. Let's see what you've got because these other guys are going to be seniors um, oh, technically juniors because the year doesn't count. But the other guys have been their fourth year in the program. I, I think it's time to experiment a little bit. The run game is not good enough, and there are players on this roster that seem to have the upside based upon the coaches' comments themselves uh, to be a part of that. And it's time to see these guys in action. That's, that's my stance. I, and I think, it's, I think it's a big thing this offseason. Is like we talk about the quarterback, but the running back is an issue too. Yeah, and, and, and my first thought is C.J. Verdell is the guy. You look at his you look at his career stats and you see a guy that's put up good numbers. But the issue here is you also look at his career and look, we're we're not being analytical or we're we're not providing false narratives. The the fact of the matter is is that when healthy CJ Verdell is one of the nation's best running backs. The problem is every year he has played at the college level. Fair or not, he has failed to stay healthy for an entire season. He is 
failed to stay healthy for half a season. He hasn't been able to go more than a couple games without getting some kind of injury. And that is the matter. That's the facts. That's not analysis. That's not opinion. That's just fact. And you, uh, uh, and this is the, the, I guess the crappy part of, of athletics is that at some point, while you never blame a player for getting hurt at some point, you do have to say, what is the phrase in, in the NBA that they always love to use your best skill, your best ability is your availability. And sure. if you can't consistently be available, maybe Oregon needs to go away from CJ Verdell as the primary running back. Maybe he, maybe he becomes your secondary running back and someone else moves into that role. I don't think Travis Dye can be that primary running back. That's, that's my opinion. I mean, every, what, three years now, and, and it's, it feels like every year he's got four or five fumbles. Um, that's too much for a running back. That's your primary ball carrier. I don't think Cyrus Habilakio can can really maximize and, and, and improve what he is right now. He's kind of at his ceiling, I, I look at, I feel like. And so that goes to what you were saying. You know, Jim Jim Astro had said beginning of the year that they felt like they had five guys that could start at running back for every other school in the conference. Well, if 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 Cyrus has kind of maxed out what he can be, we've now seen now for three years Travis and I have have fumble problems, and CJ Verdell and his four years with the program, three playing, one redshirting, he can't stay healthy. It might be time to look at what can Sean dollars give you as a primary running back is Trey Benson. The option, uh, Javon Wilson has now transferred. Do you need to go out and, and sign a transfer running back? Uh, do you need to go out and get a Brian Cardwell? Who's a four-star running back in the 2020 class, 2021 class, uh, is seven McGee, a guy that's capable of being, a full-time running back. I, I think you need to, ha- and that's going to be a tough decision. That's going to be probably one of the bigger questions this off season. Um, and real quick, before we flip over to the defensive side, yeah, we, we've talked at, at length about quarterbacks. So I don't think we need to go um, in depth there. You need to open up that position. And then I, I'm going to say it, you can agree with me. I think Tyler Shucks, probably the odds on favorite to win the job in 2021 going into the year. Um, but I, I think you, you also need to reevaluate the offensive line and figure out who are our five best players and then, and where do those five best players fit? I don't think you can go through another year of consistently rotating and consistently changing positions. Like you had tackles playing guard and, you know, a couple series into the game and then moving back to tackle and playing on the right side, moving to the left. That's just too much movement. And yeah. You need stability, and so you need to find your five best guys and play them at their at the at their best positions, and and don't flip flop guys from left to right, interior to exterior. I'm with you on that, and I think some of this is going to come down to personnel, right? What does um what does George Moore do? Does he want to stick it out? And this would be, I think, his sixth year of college, and four of those would be at Oregon. Um, does he want to come back? And if he does, that certainly makes it difficult to move away from it. If he doesn't, you then, I think it becomes a little more clear of like, okay, 
the guys who were in the I, – I, I think it's pretty obvious to me, at least, having watched the games pretty closely. Like Alex Forsyth is your center, clearly, and TJ Bass and Ryan Walker, your guards, and Malasala Amavelalu is your right tackle. Now, you can – if you want to take Ryan Walker out of the, out of the conversation, you could slide Amavelalu into right guard, and then you have maybe Stephen Jones at right tackle if what Matt thinks is the case and you think Kingsley is going to be your left tackle or, or maybe, you know, Malasala – or maybe Stephen Jones stays at left tackle and you move Malasal into right guard. I mean, you can move some guys around here if you want. Malasal did play right guard. Jones just played tackle last year, so maybe it makes more sense to slide um, Sala inside if, if you really want to move walk out of the starting lineup, which I think would be – I don't know. I'm not necessarily on board with that. I think he was he was fine. He's not an all – I mean, I know he was actually – he wasn't all-conference by the media, but, um, he, you know, he wasn't by – he didn't get a single vote by the coaches. But, like, if you want to move him out and you want to restructure this, I'm okay with that, but – I, I, to me, like the best case scenario here would be just be, well, if Kingsley's good enough, you play him. But if he's not, like, actually just rolling with these five guys that are going to be on the roster who were pseudo starters last year, and that would be the guys I mentioned: Jones, Bass, Forsyth, Walk, and and Big Sala, and just roll with those five guys. Give those guys some continuity. What made the previous offensive line so good was they had four of those guys basically starting four consecutive seasons. And the other guy was Penny Sewell, who is the best offensive lineman in program history. And he, of course, doesn't necessarily need that much continuity. And that's why if you think Kingsley's that kind of a player, you slide him in there. Like if he's that talented, he's that high ceiling guy, Matt thinks he is. I'm on board of saying, I think he has a potential to be there. I probably don't necessarily like Matt think he's a day one starter, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's starting by middle end of the season either. Um, but like, my thing is like, develop continuity. I'm with Matt. Like I think it's imperative that you now give these guys time to not only play together, but play in the same positions all season together. And I don't, it's something that we haven't had a chance to debrief um, with Mario yet, but I I will be curious to see um, kind of what his outlook and perspective is on the offensive line and rotating. Cause it was a question we asked a lot about early on in the season because it was so unique and we kind of stopped asking about it midway through. And I'd be curious to see what his thoughts are. Does he think long-term that works or not? And if it doesn't, why, why was that the case? Is this a failed experiment or is this something he thinks worked? And if it does, why? I mean, these are questions. I just want to get his perspective because he is somebody who makes his money coaching that position group. There's no doubt about it. He's a great offensive line coach. I'm, I'm going to kind of defer to him to a certain extent, but from my perspective, I don't think you do yourself much service and you do a disservice, in fact, if you're going to be rotating so much. Give these guys a full season where they're all playing the same position every game and you develop continuity. This group needed that, and I do think they hurt themselves a little bit, from my perspective, because they didn't do that at all this season and they kept shuffling. Let's let's talk about the play calling, the coaching here. Like, Overall, do we look at this and say, they got good coaching on the offense side of the ball or were there play calling issue concerns, uh, decision-making concerns? Like I feel like for the most part, the offense would receive a positive grade for me. Like there were negatives. Like I I think at times the coaching staff was very conservative in decision-making on taking risks. I think at times you could argue that they didn't do tower shock any favors in terms of, play calling and, de- and trying to develop him some confidence when he certainly lost it. 
Um, I think you could argue the quarterback shuffling was a bad move by the coaching staff, but I also think um, there were a lot of positives with early on in the year with the play calling. There was um, some production in, in terms of new scheme throughout the year and um, big play abilities that we saw in, in a lot of these games. And um, we look at this and, and think, I, I, I look at, there are more positives than negatives, I think, with the coaching side of the offensive side of the football. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. And I, again, I, 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 we started this and I, I do think the offensive hires they made, I, I don't, I, I like those hires. Um, I think those are good coaches. Um, I like a lot of what they do. But I think there's room for improvement, and I, I, tr- you know, I know you trust these guys too, Matt. Like I, like I, I think big picture, they're gonna have now a full, well, not not quite full, but they're gonna have seven games to go back and review and reflect upon. And I'm expecting to see a lot of improvements based upon the track record of these coaches going into 2021. And, and I don't, you know, part of this is gonna be somewhat personnel based. And a lot of those decisions are, are positions that are going to have to happen down the line. But like, I don't think that they're ecstatic with some of the things that happened. Like I, I, they, and they, and they've been, I think they've done a pretty good job for the most part of maybe Matt, Matt disagrees, but like of, of being, holding themselves accountable um, for, for some of the shortcomings. And I don't know. I, 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 I don't it's go a into tough tw- one. I, I don't go into 2021. I, I know it is because I, I have a lot of respect for for some of the things they did. I don't go into 2021 thinking it's going to be this season's going to be lost because of the play calling, right? Like I don't. I, I really don't think that. Um, I think it'll be lost based upon personnel decisions. Like I think that's bigger. But like, I also think that there's certainly room for improvement and. I'd, I'd like to see a lot more creativity on certain downs in certain situations. I think we both, we've kind of touched on the past because I, they have the athletes to be aggressive and they have the scheme that allows you to be aggressive. And it just seems like when the going got tough, it got predictable. Um, especially at end, in end of game situations. Like, I mean, it's not, and it's not just short yardage. It's, it's you have three downs to win a game against Oregon State, and you can't move the ball. Yeah, at all. Um, it's you know, and I know they converted one first down against USC, and I know you don't want to get too cutesy there because you don't want to blow the game. And we've already criticized Mark Cristobal for doing that in the past against Stanford. So there's a fine balance here. But there is also something to be said for not being too predictable because I just think that ends up being that's how you lose games, right? You don't yeah. want to, you, you play to win the game. You don't play not to lose it. And I do think sometimes that has been symptomatic of this, of this staff. And I don't know how much that is Mario and how much that is Joe, but I think it's something that has to be addressed. Right. There's also, uh, and this is what we're not factoring in either. Like there's also a learning curve, right? For sure. 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 For the, for the coaches too, of, Hey, this works with this personnel at this school, but I don't have that exact personnel yet. And how do we get here? And and you're kind of having to do it on the fly because no spring football. Um, I think that's a big. You know, you don't want to make excuses, but at the same time, that's a big impact there as well. Um, defensively, let's look at this. 
this is one in which I think at the tail end of the year and after reviewing the Iowa state game a couple times and really thinking on it, like they played a lot better than my initial reaction was on defense. It's just that first half was really bad. Um, they couldn't get off the field at all. Like it was like what eight of nine on third downs that they converted. And the one time that they didn't convert against Iowa state on third down, uh, the, the cyclones converted on fourth. Um, they scored two touchdowns on third down in that first half. So like, I, I feel like the first half really just ruined my perspective on the entire game. Cause in the second mm-hmm. half, they played actually pretty good. They, they did play well. Yeah. Um, but I look at what they were like and, and I mean, you could do almost anything to them on the ground all year long. And in, in a year in which, Hey, you bring back so many star players, you're going to be the, you're going to be what the, the, the Oregon program leans on until the offense gets up to date. Um, and then the opt outs happen and you're like, okay, like that stinks. And um, from, from a you know potential standpoint of what this defense could have been, but you still go into the year thinking we still have our front seven basically intact. Like Javon Holland was not a linebacker. I mean, he, he played nickel. Yes. And he was up against in the, against the run, but he was not in your front seven. Typically um, Brady breeze while a, a, just a missile on defense, he's not a defensive lineman. Um, you, you brought all your starters back on the D line. You, brought back one of your top linebackers and Isaac Slade Matuatia. You had Mace Funa. You were getting back Adrian Jackson, who was a starter going into the year last year before he got hurt for the season. You add two five-star linebackers, and yet it felt like the front seven took a step back, which is really surprising. I think I think well, they, then they certainly got better at the end of the season, but to yes. start, they were really, really bad. And I think a couple things here that I just reflect on and I go – they did bring back all their starters, but they also lost a bunch of key depth guys. You know, Gus Cumberland, I know he didn't play down the stretch last year, but like Drayden Carlberg, um, Gary Baker even. Um, I'm blanking on I think I'm blanking on an, another name here. Um, a Polynesian player I can't think of. But like some of these guys that were experienced veteran players that had played a lot of football and, and, and they weren't stars, but that were impactful players. Like, those guys, you kind of get lost in the shuffle, but losing – I think they lost four senior defensive linemen. And, and right, you're right, Matt. Like, they didn't – none of them were starters. They brought back all the guys that played key downs last year, basically, and also a lot of their depth guys. Some of the depth guys, I should say. But I think that part needs to be at least acknowledged for some of the early season struggles. Um, the play at linebacker was disappointing to start, especially. I thought – let me go back and watch some of those first – four games or so probably up until the Cal game. And some of the play in space was really abysmal from Isaac Slade, even from Noah Sewell, who everybody loves. I think he's going to be a star, obviously conference freshman defensive player of the year, um, huge upside player, but he missed some, he, you know, didn't make all the plays he needed to Mace Funa for sure was, yeah. was really misfiring early. I think he corrected some stuff. On rundowns in particular, well, I should say a passing too. I mean, they didn't have like hardly any sacks. Like, I mean, you're, you're right. Like, I, I think you, you can't look overlook the pack. Like, I think back at the end of the season, and I think maybe it's short term memory here of like, well, they were playing really well at the end, but that just started the Cal game. And then they, their last three games defensively, you saw the front that we'd expected all season. And some of this has to be 
the reality of just breaking in a new season. A lot of these kinks usually get right. fixed early in a non-conference season that Oregon didn't they have. They could get fixed time. in fall camp because they had spring football. All of these factors do have to be at least acknowledged defensively, but you can't totally ignore the fact that this group just wasn't good enough early in the season, and it was actually really pretty bad. Um, I mean, no, I think they had like three combined sacks the first three games. Yeah, um, They did not do well against the run. Like, I mean, we talk about the Oregon State game because everybody can, sit, can remember Jamar Jefferson running. UCLA ran for almost the same number the week before. Um, they had back-to-back games where they gave up 260-plus yards on the ground, um, and that's not good. And, you know, again, they improved against – the last three games they were good, but that start, you're right, that has to be addressed. And I think you look at 2021 and you go, you're certainly not being Ohio State if you start the season that slow up front, right? I mean, to beat Ohio State, Oregon's going to have to be near perfect. They're going to have to be on their game. I mean, this is a team that has a chance to win a national championship in the next couple of days here. Um, to win that game, you have to be perfect. You can't start slow out of the gate. And they did. They started slow out of the gate this year defensively. It got better. And there's a lot of credit that, that needs to be given, both the coaches and players, for those improvements. Like, you can't ignore that. But you also can't ignore the fact that they started slow. And I think it was frustrating because we know the upside of these players. And you, you also have to point out, I don't want to make too many excuses, like Justin Flo didn't play hardly at all this season. You mentioned him as a key player. And um, Adrian Jackson played maybe two or three games before he got hurt. I mean, he's been snake bitten by injury as well. So, like, there were some injury issues that, that hurt this group. But MJ, MJ Cunningham was lost at some point in the season. Um, again, it's hard to reflect on exactly when because they were so hush about injuries. Um, and we were at some of the games. But, like, I, I, I look at this group and think, you like it the way they finished, but, boy, they did not get out to a good start. And it didn't cost them any games aside from the Oregon State game. But you would have loved to have been in more dominant position to get some of the reserve players more playing time. And that could have been accomplished by a better first half against Washington State. I mean, they had to play the whole game there almost in Pullman against a team that wasn't very good because they made so many first half mistakes. Some of that was offensive. Some of it was defensive. UCLA, same thing. I mean, they, they barely won that game against a backup quarterback. And who knows what would have happened had Davis Mills played for Stanford in that opener. So right. I mean, the defense just wasn't good enough in, the, in those first handful of games. It got better, but it really wasn't good enough. And I think that has to be a disappointment. And if it's Andy Avalos who's the defensive coordinator, which I think we don't know entirely right now based upon that Boise State vacancy, that's something he has to address and he has to be focused on this offseason. It's just starting the season better. Secondary, this was a unit that we were expecting to be really, really good before the opt-outs. And then the opt-outs hit, and we went from thinking, okay, they were probably the best defensive secondary in the country when they had Thomas Graham, Javon Hall, Brady Breeze, De'Ambre Lenore, Michael Wright as your starting – Verone McKinley as your starting unit, and Nick Pickett in there as well as a a starter – and, you know, flip or flop. And then you have a Jamal Hill, a DJ James, um, two guys that were probably going to be thrust into action a little bit more this season, but kind of eased along. And then when the opt-outs hit, our perspective goes from probably the best defensive unit or best secondary unit in the country to maybe one of the better units in the country. And I think early on, Lenore and Wright were there. McKinley was there. Um, Pickett 
was there. But the issue was that at safety, you had Verone and you had Pickett both have to deal with targeting calls that may or may not have been actual targeting calls. Um, that's a discussion at another time we won't get into, but those guys are in and out of the lineup because of targeting calls for the next couple of games. You have Jordan Happel into the mix and you're thinking, okay, maybe he's going to be that really good sixth man. And now he's having to start. And Bennett Williams is going to be that really good, you know, sixth man type guy, steal a basketball phrase. And he's having to start games. Uh, DJ James now is being thrust into a bigger role and Jamal Hill. Well, talented probably wasn't quite there yet to, to be a starter in that role at the beginning of the year. And so you've got a lot of learning curve and they probably weren't as good as we expected them to be at the beginning of the year. But Eric, I think at the end of the year, Jamal Hill looks like a dude now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to say he's going to be a, you know, a first round draft pick in two years, but this is a guy now that's going to be one of the better secondary players in the country. Mikhail Wright is already going to be one of the better secondary players uh, in the country. DJ James had a huge breakup, I think, against USC and yep. against Iowa State in the end zone. Um, really, really impressive young guy there that's starting to develop. But beyond that, you have a lot of questions about the depth. Yeah, you, I think you feel it's a weird unit because you're right. Going into the season, gosh, think about how the second it would have been with Thomas Graham, Javon Holland, and Brady Breeze. You My couldn't gosh. throw on them. You wouldn't have, I mean, it would have been a totally different defense. That has to be like a starting point for any conversation we have reviewing the secondary is like those guys would have made a huge difference. Just like Penny Sewell has to be – we didn't in, 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 include that earlier. We, we needed to. You know, just like this, deep, this group could have been a lot better had Penny Sewell just been a left tackle all season – you think about how different the offense could have been defensively. I mean, Thomas Graham is going to be, I think a second day draft pick. I think the same thing of Javon Holland. I have no idea where Brady breeze gets selected. Um, but there, that was a lot of talent that walked out the door. And I don't think the corners played poorly all season, to be totally honest. Like I think Mikhail Wright and Diamond Lenore both played pretty darn well. I mean, they're both all conference players first team for Wright and second team for Lenore on both the coaches and the media um, vote. Those guys were fine. It was really, to me, inconsistent play from Jamal Hill early. He rectified that, and I thought it was, like you said, I think you've got a star in the making there. The way he finished the season, not just against USC, but against Cal, but against Iowa State, um, he made some huge plays over the course of those games, both breaking up passes, intercepting passes, making big hits. Like I, I think that guy is somebody you can lean upon and just expect to be – all-conference caliber guy for the, however long he's at Oregon, probably two more years. Um, Roman Kinley, I think he played really well this year. To me, it, the glaring issue here was the other spot, and it's where Nick Pickett plays. It's where Jordan Happel plays. I think Bennett Williams that filled in a little bit. Nick Pickett, we now know, is gone for 2021. He's going to go and enter the draft and, and start some sort of professional career. I don't know if he'll be drafted or not. My guess would be probably not. If he is, it'd be late. But I, I look at that position is the one you need to rectify if we're just talking starting group. Cause I feel pretty good about what Oregon's going to have at corner with Mikhail right at one with DJ James or Dante Manning at the other with Jamal Hill at safe at nickel with Ferro McKinley at safety. That one safety spot to me is a big question mark. And then you're right. It's depth. It's depth. It's, it's who else can help. You know, it's not just that you're losing a couple of these guys to go pro. It's that that now forces somebody else up to step in 
and play some snaps. Like I think we think DJ James is going to be great. And I think we fully expect that like a Dante Manning at some point is going to be good. We just haven't seen it yet. It's who else can help. And this is where like from a recruiting perspective, Jadarius Perkins feels really big to me, you know, getting a veteran guy, you know, he decommitted. He's now still uncommitted. He's going to sign in, in February. Oregon seems to have some traction on the crystal ball. We'll leave that for, you know, VIP updates in terms of where that's headed. But like, if he ends up back at Oregon, that to me feels significant because that's at least an older player that you can rely upon because you get past Mikhail Wright and DJ James. And I just don't know what you have at corner. I yeah. really don't, I, you know, and then at, at safety, both Jordan Happel and Bennett Williams played quite a bit. I don't know what you've got there. Steve Stevens is a name that we liked early on in the season. He disappeared. Um, and he, you know, and I, so I, I look at this group and think I'm with you, Matt, of it's, I think you feel pretty good about four of the five starting spots that are going to be quality play. I think that one uh, boundary safety spot that Nick Pickett was playing and Nick made plays, but was also at times kind of a weak point, I think in the secondary, that is a crucial spot. And then it's where's the depth at corner and where's the depth at safety? Um, Who are the backups at those spots? And are they going to be capable to come in and make plays? Um, A guy who I think you have to at least acknowledge from a special teams perspective, and usually the guys who make plays on special teams end up being good secondary players, is J.J. Greenfield. Um, Had a couple huge hits, forced a fumble against UCLA. Um, But, like, is he going to be ready to make contributions on defense? We don't know. And there's just a lot of question marks in the secondary going into 2021, not necessarily from the top line, but that second line. I think you, you just basically have question marks across the board there. And that's not a great place to be. I, I think also this side of the football was impacted the most by no conditioning, no fourth quarter program. Fair enough. Yep. Fair, fair, fair. No true, you know, training camp, no true off season in the summer um, training. I think this was the unit that was impacted the most because as the season wore on and guys got into better shape, it was, it was clear in my eyes um, who was able to stay in shape in the offseason on their own, who wasn't um, at the beginning of the year. And as the season wore on, though, and they were able to stack weeks of practice onto weeks of practice, game onto game, we started to see this defense get into better shape. We saw them get into better conditioning, strength-wise, agility-wise, endurance-wise. And we saw guys starting to play better. Um, I mean, one instance is Mace Funa, a guy that the first three games of the year, Eric, like this was a guy that was an all American as a freshman. And then as a sophomore, his first three games, he was making very little impact on the football field. And then his final two or three games of the year, he was all over the place against varying degrees of offenses and styles and schemes and was still making impact. So it wasn't like he was just playing teams that were better suited to his, his style of play. I mean, it was very, you know, complete opposite end of the spectrum offenses. Um, And he was dominating. And so I think that's a storyline that also needs to be addressed and be accepted that, Hey, you know, Iowa state, they were able to practice throughout the off season and they had 11 games and preparation. Arizona State was a school in the Pac-12 that could practice throughout the offseason as normal, whereas Oregon couldn't. And that needs to be accounted for and that needs to be acknowledged. It's not an excuse, but nonetheless, it's it's what happened. And I think we'll see an improvement there 
uh, next season because of a normal off season. Granted, we expect them to have one and that's kind of up in the air, but well, let's at least count on it for now. Um, let's end it here with this discussion. How do you view this season? Was it a overwhelming a success uh, or are you on the other end of the spectrum? Was it a year in which, Hey, they did not live up to expectations. I don't think you can say it was an overwhelming success. I think that would be anytime you lose to Oregon state, you lose your bowl game in that kind of fashion. It's not that you can't make that claim. Um, you also can't say it's a huge failure because you did win a conference championship, regardless of how <laughs> some people might want to look at that and put an asterisk next to it. I don't think that's fair either. Cause I think Oregon was the best team in the conference. You know, they beat USC straight up, but there was no favors done in that game. Um, could Washington have a claim? Sure. But like they didn't do what they needed to do to stay on the field and play in the game. And so I, I don't think there's much of a claim there, but like, I, I look at it and say, yeah, it's you can't say it's an overwhelming success because they lost three games and they lost two of them to teams that just flat out they shouldn't be losing games to if they want to be a big time program. And the third game they lost in the Fiesta Bowl was pretty embarrassing. Um, I know it's only a seventeen point game, um, and I know you know in three years we could look at that score and say, well, maybe it was closer than that or whatnot. But like the fact is they just never really challenged Iowa state in the second half. And Iowa state didn't have to try to score. They didn't have, that's not to say that Oregon's defense was like gifted anything, but like, I, I don't think Iowa state needed to open up the playbook and take any risks in the second half because Oregon just offensively was, was a nothing. So no, it's not an overwhelming success. I, I think it's kind of somewhere in between. Right. I think that's the way you're always going to have to look at. I mean, like I, I my, and I said this before, I think my overwhelming lasting kind of memory of this season is it's going to be a season where you go, you just never saw best case Oregon. You never saw a game all season. I know it was only seven games, but you never saw a game where the offense and the defense both clicked. Um, and we saw that in past years. We saw that against Utah in the conference championship game last year. We saw that in a couple of games early on in the season last year. We didn't see it at all in 2020. Um, the games, you know, the, the, their most lopsided win of the season was a 21-point win against Stanford where the defense, I know it was 14 points, but Iowa State's kicker missed four field goals, and the offense turned it over two or three times. Um, the rest of the games, like this Washington State game, defense didn't play very well. The offense played pretty well besides three turnovers in the first half. The UCLA game, Neither side played very well. A ton of, a t I mean, gosh, they gave up so many yards. The Oregon State game, everybody remembers that game. The Cal game, the defense plays great, aside from a couple long Cal scoring drives where they make where they kind of shoot themselves in the foot. The defense is a total non-factor. USC game is the closest thing you can say to it, and yet they didn't have a single drive of over 70 yards the whole game, you know? So, and certainly we know what the Iowa State game was. Like, I, I, that's how I'm going to remember it. It was like, this was a season where we looked at the promise for what Oregon could be. And you can just almost unequivocally say, not almost, I think unequivocally say they never reached their potential. They never got to the best case. And that right there is the reason you look at the season and go, yeah, it, it, it was not a massive success. They reached one of their key milestones and that's winning a conference championship. And you can't take that away. But I never, I'm never going to look at this season and say 2020, boy, that was a special year. Like you, you look at the last 10 years of Oregon football, it's not the bottom because <laughs> no, nothing's ever going to be worse. Um, than 2016, but it's certainly nowhere near the top. It's not in the, I mean, it, it, it might be with 2016 and 2017, 
like the next worst year of the entire decade. Like, and I don't think that's crazy to suggest just because of some of the low points of the season, even though they did win the conference. I look at this season and think this is kind of the bottom of a successful year. Like you, 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 you lose to Oregon state and that's not good. You lose to Oregon state and Cal, the talent gaps of those two teams. And that's unacceptable. Um, you lose to Iowa state in the manner in which you, it's not the fact that they, that they lost to the Fiesta bowl game to Iowa state. And the fact that Oregon is top 15 in talent, Iowa state is top 60 in talent. They're like 57th. Yeah, um, it's the fact that you weren't competitive for most of that game with Iowa state. That's the issue. It's not that you lost, you can lose and you walk away feeling like, gosh, that sucks. But they were right there. They could have won that game if this play didn't happen or if these three different outcomes in the game at different points of the game didn't go against Oregon. This was a straight up butt kicking. And that's, a, that's the part that's unacceptable for me. Yet all the tribulations that, that they had to go through all the roster turnover that they had to go over overcome with the off season that they had or that they didn't have really, they still found a way to win the league. And you can argue that they had to backdoor their way into the conference championship game, but you can also argue that, you know, they may have won that game against Washington to outright claim the North division title. They were take that opportunity to say that they were North champions or not was taken away from them because Washington could not play in that football game. Um, so you look at this and think they had a lot of downs and yet they still found a way to win the league and they still had an offense at certain positions that put up good numbers. They still had a defense at certain positions that put up good numbers. And there are some warts on this 2020 team, but there are also some really good bright spots that you look forward to and say, I like where, where this is going, this position or this segment or this part of the program is going. And so I look at it as this is a year that's, you, you never apologize for winning. They won the conference. You never apologize for that. But what makes it difficult is that there's still so much more room to grow, so much more room to improve upon that this team could be so much better in 2020 if they were able to put everything together. And that's the disappointing part is that there were a lot of positives left on the table, things that Oregon could control that they didn't accomplish. And that's what makes you think that this year could have been special, could have been great, could have been one of those years that you talk about 10 years down the road, but isn't because they weren't able to capitalize. They weren't able to finish games uh, and they had mistakes. And so I don't know if I don't believe this game puts like Mario Cristobal's hot seat. It doesn't it, it no. doesn't get hotter. It's it's not a topic right now um, for me. But it also doesn't give him any credit down the road. Like, if Oregon in 2021 comes out and goes eight and five, I start getting a little worried. I don't care that they won the league two years in a row. You know, the the issues that happened in 2020 and the positives they they basically net each other out. Like, it's just zero. It's, you know, he didn't build any credit in 2020. Like he built credit in 2019. And so 
you look at this and think it's a good year, but there's still a ton to be better at. And that's what's disappointing is that typically what we've seen under crystal ball is a team that continues to show improvement. And I don't feel like they made incremental, you know, massive leaps in their development in a positive manner. They, they had some, but they also took some steps back that were, that are pretty hurtful. Let me recap. Just like the season can never be a success if you lose to Oregon state, like almost period. Like, I mean, I hate to say it, but like that, you can't lose a game like that and look back no. and really love the season. You just no. can't, and unless you went undefeated and won the like national championship or something like that. Losing to Oregon state is unacceptable. It really is. Especially the way these two programs are at from, from a talent perspective. And that maybe that's one thing we learned this year was, you know, Oregon lost three games against team. They were significantly more talented to, and yeah, that's, a, that's cause for some concern for sure. It's, I mean, I, this is not a USC staff where they just blow game after game to really crappy teams, but losing three teams that are woefully underprepared or not underprepared, but woefully less talented from the, you know, the team recruiting ranking perspective. That's always going to be something that's in the back of my head when I look at the season too. Overall, four and three Pac-12 champions for a second year in a row. Lots to improve upon. It's going to be interesting to see the storylines play out this this summer, this spring, and into 2021 and see the development, the growth, the progress that this program makes with a full offseason with another elite recruiting class and kind of where they go, what fuels them from 2020 and how it does it set up the 2021 football season. That's going to do it for us here. Uh, thank you for listening. Until we talk to you next week, you've been listening to the Ots and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.